Welcome to the Tej Talks Podcast. Forget the property celebrities. We speak to relatable people with fascinating journeys, just like you. Hosted by Tej Singh, we bring you new stories, life-changing deals, and expert advice every week. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Tej Talks podcast. If you didn't know, I got a book. It's on Amazon. Check it out. Also, five-star reviews. So on today's podcast, we have Kevin Whelan, who is very good at communicating all things finance and wealth and building wealth and financial independence. So we don't talk too much about property. It's more a general view of his seven pillars of wealth, and that's the seven you know reoccurring income streams and also how to save effectively. And in addition, we talk about becoming investable on your property projects. Now, financial education is something that just is not taught at school or almost in any part of our formal education. But of course, as we know, it's super, super important. So whether you're in property or looking to get into property, this is a great discussion about finance, financial independence and wealth and building it. Kevin, welcome to the Tej Talks podcast. Hello, Tej. What a privilege it is to be invited by you. I'm looking forward to doing what I can to help your property owners and your aspiring property owners to uh, to really dive into some things which may be a little off the beaten track, Tej. No, definitely. And I know the privilege is all mine. I'm looking forward to this because, you know, although we are going to be talking about property somewhat, I think we're going to kind of focus on wealth and let's call it financial independence because of course property is one of the ways to do that but you have a system and you have a I suppose a way of thinking which I think is going to open people up and maybe get them to question more what they're doing and why they're doing it and actually show them how they can achieve financial independence of course you know including property but this sort of thing isn't really spoken about too often and you know it's definitely not taught in schools um so this is going to be uh, you know an interesting and different podcast for people but before we get into that kevin could you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself sure i'm kevin wheeler i'm a wizened old wizard now of finance i've been around for a very long time now um i'm no i'm not on video you could probably check that out for yourself I'm the founder of uh, Wealth Builders, which is a thriving and hugely growing community of people who are committed to achieving financial independence because 95% of the population simply don't make it and, and most are in some form of being supported by the government or their family in the end. And uh, that's not really a great place to be and the world's becoming more volatile, more complex. And, uh, and you know, you talked about not being taught in schools. You know, I'm, I'm really also writing as well as other books I've written, I'm going to be writing something soon about, you know, why don't they teach us at schools and what can we do to bring our kids along on the journey because the next generation is going to be poorer than the one before, probably for the first time ever. So so I would say, you know, I often refer to myself as a guide. So um, I'm not claiming to be a guru, but, but I'm a guide to all things wealth. And because what I have learned and what I put into practice for myself is holistic, so it involves property, but it also involves uh, an understanding of all seven ways to build wealth. Um, so there are only seven ways, Tesh. I'm sure you'll, you'll probe and pull that out of me. Um, and I think it's useful for people to understand that uh, wealth can be achieved in a richly diversified way, as opposed to putting all our eggs in any one single basket, which if 
the pandemic has told us anything is baskets can be somewhat fragile, uh, whether it's a business, whether it's a property strategy. Um, so the more you can create diversification, seven different recurring income streams, ideally, or certainly on the way to seven, then you can become financially bulletproof and then independent of the government, independent of whether we're in Brexit or not, you know, independent of anything, really. And that, to me, is the key. Mm. And I want to go straight into the, the seven pillars of wealth. But before I do, how do you define the word wealth? That's a really, really great question. And I would say, you know, wealth is about living life on your terms. So it's whatever you want to become, however you want to live, and whatever that, and that's wrapped up in some kind of a freedom. Um, whether it's freedom of time, you know, I'm a granddad now and, you know, want more time to spend with my family. Um, whether it's the freedom to operate wherever you want to. I'm just talking to one of my clients today who's operating from France. Um, another one from Africa. You know, so lots of different ways to have freedom. Freedom of relationships. So you surround yourself with people you really love, as opposed to being in a job and working for a boss you really hate, perhaps. Uh, freedom of creativity. You know, you're a creative guy, aren't you? And that creativity can be somewhat squashed if somebody has to tell you where to turn up and how to turn up and what to wear and what to do um, and all of those things. So it's about freedom and getting freedom on your terms to be who you want to be. Uh, and I think freedom of legacy is another great one as well. Yeah, I love that definition. And I think that's so important is personal to everyone. And, you know, in your definition there, you didn't mention money. You didn't mention a level of income. Although, of course, it goes with it. That's because for me, it could be X amount a month. For you, it could be Y a month. And that's that's what really matters is what is our number you know what gives us that freedom so i think that's important for people to think about you know don't listen to me or like my goals don't listen to kevin and his goals look at your own and use us to kind of help you create yours doesn't matter what we're doing it's it's what you want to do yeah well said on that one Tej. but but what we found to be the case is yes you're right i mean there is a financial independence number and you know i've articulated there are five levels of wealth um, and it's all measured by the degree to which money is recurring in your life. So if you stop doing what you were doing for every reason, you stopped it, whether through choice or through force, through a sabbatical or through an injury, or even if you were caught up in, you know, COVID pandemic, what income would flow into your life automatically? And the more you have, uh, the more you can assess that against, you know, these levels. So the basic first three levels are financial insecurity. In other words, if you stop doing what you were doing, the money would not flow into your life or a limited amount would. And as a result, you'd be going backwards very soon. Level number two is financial security, the amount of money that you and only you need to live a life that would be compromised, but would be acceptable to you. Um, now, that's often what I'd now call a lockdown life, you know, where you, you can't have the holidays, you can't do some of the things you just love to do. Uh, like me, holidays and restaurants, you just can't do any of those things anymore. So a lockdown life, what would that be? And usually the reason we shoot for that first with our clients and members is if you can get to security, you've got to a place where you can use the time because, you know, mostly when people underestimate, or rather, I'll correct myself there, overestimate the amount of money they need, because after tax, you know, the amount most people are living on is a lot less. So therefore, if you can shoot for a figure that gets you the equivalent of whatever your net pay is, then you can afford to give up the day job or a business if it's consuming you, because uh, many people 
equally, you know, are tied to a business as well as tied to a job. Um, and then that gives you the freedom not to have to do that work. And then that unlocks so much time, which is the great leverage, really, that most people miss, um, which is if you don't have time, you won't really achieve financial independence at all. And then the final level is financial independence, that level where your life would be without compromise. It's entirely on your own terms. And whatever that number is, that's your number. Now, in, in our community, we've got the average of what those numbers are, but that's not relevant uh, because everybody is different. If you want to live a life in a in a yurt in Namibia and you want to look after animals, you could probably do that on you know much less than if you want to live a life where you're going on holiday every 60 days to far from places and, and traveling in club class. So there's lots of different figures, but everybody's, you know, should be thinking about, well, what would that number be to at least get to security? And then uh, what would the figure be to get to independence? And once you've got that, you can identify the gap between perhaps where you are now in terms of recurring income, not earned income. And there's a big difference between income that's earned and income that comes from assets you know, one is temporary, one is permanent, one flows automatically, the other one demands you being there to show up. Uh, so there are some fundamental differences there. And I'm, I think it's teeing up the time to talk about what those seven assets are, Tesh. Yeah. And I like how that's broken down, because also when people are starting off, you know, for example, most of my listeners in property or any business, you can set these levels out, you can calculate it using, you know, your life, your goals, whatever it is, and add the numbers you need at each level. And I suppose it is quite a nice milestone as you progress in your business, whatever you're doing, to kind of tick them off and see how you're getting it. Because if you say, oh, I want to get to the fifth stage and that's my only goal, mm. it, you know, along the way you haven't got kind of little rewards or little um, achievements. So yeah, it's really nice to break it down like that. And yes, let's talk. What are the seven pillars of wealth? Mm. Well, that's a really great question. So the way my business is structured is if you can imagine, and anybody who'd like to check it out can check out the logo of Wealth Builders. Um, but Wealth Builders logo is essentially a foundation, like a plinth or a you know solid base to a building, a roof perched on top, and seven strong and robust pillars uh, which make up the fabric of the building. And that's essentially what we teach. So we teach a foundation, we teach a roof, uh, but the seven pillars are the essence. And um, essentially what we're doing is saying, first of all, you know, income – to, to create wealth, you need the income to flow, and that needs to flow automatically. So that comes from the ownership of assets. So first of all, let's define an asset. So not an, an, although I'm an economist by training, I'm not going to give you an economics or an accountancy definition. I'm going to give you a wealth builder's definition. An asset is something you own that is not you. It puts money in your bank account while you're asleep. You can pass on that money to your family or good causes. You do not have to show up, but the money continues to show up. That's an asset. Now, the essence then is flowing income. So let's describe what the seven are. And the easiest way to do that is to have your listeners work with us a bit, Tej. I know if they're driving or if they're doing something when they're uh, le you know, leveraging their time and they can't do it, but we could to imagine, imagine um, a circle. And you're drawn like a spider, you know, so you've got three legs coming to one side and four legs going to the other. And we're going to describe them in two different sides. The first is the first three I call the traditional pillars. 
So I refer to assets as pillars because they fit into that principle of that uh, that building that I mentioned. So pillar number one is home capacity. I'll describe them in just a second. Pillar number two, traditional pillar, is pension. And pillar number three is investment or investments. So while they're not very popular in terms of growth and ambition and entrepreneurship, almost everybody in the UK and in the US and other Western countries will have a home they live in. They will have some form of pension contribution, either historically, personally, or from their employer. And they'll have some cash in the bank or some money invested somewhere. And that's the traditional way people build wealth. And when people rely on those for reasons that will become clear, they simply never make it to financial independence. They just don't make it. And the reason why is, well, most people live in their home, so it doesn't create a cash flow automatically. But there are many, many ways the home can be used to creatively uh, form or a source of leverage. Pensions, most people have a relationship of kind of disconnection. The very language of pensions is gray, opaque, it's impenetrable, and people kind of switch off. It's almost like I've got some money somewhere, could be their biggest bank account actually, but it's do not disturb till 65, parked in a box. Their relationship with it is they get their statement, they wish it were better, and they put it back. So it's well organized, it's well structured, but it's not involved at all. And they're paying a hefty price for that um, in terms of fees and volatility. And third is people have money in cash, which we know the downsides of money in cash. It's underperforming inflation right now. Uh, Or they have money, again, in the stock market, in ISAs or other tax wrappers, which are always useful. But in the end, when you put your money in the stock market, the financial institutions will put a siphon into that and be removing costs and charges often to the tune of 2% per annum. And if the average investor is getting six, you know, over the long term, when you iron out booms and bumps, you know, you've got somebody taking a third of your income just because you don't really know any better uh, and you're getting on with your life. So the combination of those three things is most people simply do not get to financial independence at all. Or if they do, it'll take them 40 years to do it because they'll work for the same company for 40 years, you know, like a armed forces or civil service or something like that, where they can get a decent pension. But even a decent pension in that speak is two thirds of what you're on before you retired. Well, A, why would you wait 40 years? B, why would you take two thirds of what you're on in the first place? And C, those days are gone. You know, nobody's got those those schemes anymore. They're almost now, um, almost all the big companies, all the FTSE companies, nobody has these final salary schemes anymore. So you're left to the mercy of a volatile and increasingly volatile stock market, hefty fees, and the combination is most people simply don't make it. But they don't know they're not going to make it. But the consequence, in fact, is that's what happens. So they're the first three. And you can probably see by looking at that, Tej, that that's probably the reason why most people want to look at some other form of wealth building. But any comments from you on those three? I think... No, nothing to add, really. It's something that we see a lot. And I think we hear a lot of people talking about, especially out of, um, like, I remember when I was employed, those are the kind of things that people wouldn't necessarily talk about them. If they did come up, 
that's kind of what it would be. Oh, pension statement. Oh, yeah, cool. You know, see it next year. Oh, I can't, can't quit my job now. I'm going to be here for 30 years until I get my pension and then I'm going to be. So, yeah, definitely have seen and experienced that from other people for sure. So, you know, people sometimes will get the realization often as a catalyst that gets uh, people to disturb their pattern of thinking. You know, for me, it was the, it was fortunately for me, Tej, it was the early death of my father who died at 46. I don't mean it was fortunate in any other way that it was a catalyst for me. Uh, so I was in my mid twenties at the time and um, it kind of made me realize uh, because we were genetically cut from the same cloth for sure. Um, I was worried at that time, you know, my late twenties actually um, and thought crumbs, you know, I'm a young economist. I can't make enough and save enough to give a future life to the family I was about to have. So I made a decision. It was in August, 1988 never to trade time for money and to put my intellect to work on building things that I now call the pillars. I didn't know that at the time. There was no guide. There was no roadmap. There was no GPS. There wasn't even the internet then. Um, so it was definitely a journey for me of trial and error and, and discovered that there are some things that uh, you can learn that can propel you in a different direction. And that's what the other four pillars that I'll now describe have become. So pillar number four is a property portfolio. Pillar number five is business. And again, I'll, I'll kind of give a, a little definition and subtle nuances of each. Six is intellectual property. And seven is joint ventures. So they're the simplistic. So if you, if you kind of were drawing them out in, in mind or on a piece of paper, you'd see three to the left, you know, four, four to one side and three to the other side. Now, the difference between the left and the right-hand side if you think about property, you know, property is a very diverse asset class. So there's so many strategies within property that we can discuss or not discuss. But, you know, you, you have to learn a whole set of language when you're looking into that from buy to let to HMO to service accommodation to commercial, commercial to residential, rent to rent, you name it. There's a language. And this is true of wealth. You know, you have to speak the language. And there are ways to generate both cash flow and capital. But for me, the key thing is measuring cash flow. If you make capital, then it's what you do with the reinvestment of that capital that determines your wealth. Otherwise, you're trading, um, you know, property deals, flipping or or sourcing. You know, you're not really building wealth. You're just creating a pot. It's then what you do with that pot that becomes key. The business issue is my favorite pillar, which is how do you create businesses that got a three-pin PowerPoint that goes to the heart of businesses that work for a real extraordinary value. And the three points that I make in there are, number one, you need an outstanding niche. So be outstanding in a niche. Number two, a high degree of recurring income. So a business where the income recurs, you're not trading time for money in the business. And then, um, and the third point is the business can work without you being there. Not necessarily the beginning, but certainly you've got a plan to achieve that. And, and it's very possible to get infinite ROIs on your money in a business and to create multiple businesses. I have eight businesses at the moment. And, uh, you know, I focus on this because having business for me plays to my creativity. So when you ask me, you know, what does wealth mean? Well, to me, it means creativity. It means the freedom to be creative. And I love business because you can express the most creativity there. I'm not saying you can't be creative in property or in other assets, but you've got more scope to invent and create there than any other asset. The next one is um, intellectual property, which is creating income 
from the value that you already have in your head, but you now capture it and repurpose it in a way that can create and generate an ongoing flow of income for you. Now, that could be books. That could be, obviously, we know uh, people write songs, hence the word royalty, which always sounds to me a very interesting sound, doesn't it? Royalty. It sounds pretty cool. But also you get royalties from licensing or franchising and lots of different ways. And a lot of our clients uh, get into that space of book writing, creating courses, creating materials, which can be sold on autopilot, if you like to create an ongoing income for the inventor or the capturer of the IP. And by the way, you don't even need to be your IP. You can create a business that captures the IP of others and you become a curator. Um, So if you want to dive into the different ways to create businesses, there are four different ways businesses can operate on the model I've just mentioned. Uh, I'm more than happy to talk about those. And then the, the next one, the final one, is joint ventures or collaborations. And uh, one of the things I like, which is my second favorite pillar, is the way that people can connect and collaborate in ways where they bring different perspectives, different wealth dynamics. I don't know if you speak the language of wealth dynamics, but different ways of looking at things, different skills, different, just different ways of being able to bring value, uh, whether it's, you know, I tend to fund, so, I, I, you know, I will fund things. So I won't be the doer of, say, a, uh, a commercial to residential conversion. I'm not a developer, don't ever intend to be. It's not my thing, but but I will be a funder of those things. So I can bring money where other people bring skills and diligence. So you see the point. So if you can create for yourself an income stream from several of those, then whatever happens in the economy, you can create a sense of certainty. Um, and I call it being financially bulletproof. And while you can be irritated or mildly affected, by a change in one asset or another, you're never going to be devastated. And my experience is once you get through independence, the next level, if anybody was even curious about going higher than independence is abundance, where you've got so much money flowing into your life, you're then, your then your focus starts to change from being about self, more about what you can do and impact others. Uh, and I think that tends to be where philanthropy often starts, doesn't need to start there, but often starts there. And I see that as well. So I hope that gives you a kind of an overview of the four entrepreneurial pillars and, and maybe any observations from you, Tejum, what you see is the difference between the three that people traditionally rely on and the four that uh, are much more likely to help people achieve financial independence. And, and in my experience, from working with hundreds and hundreds of people and guiding them through a roadmap, it takes between three to seven years to do. Think about that, three to seven years, maybe five years, the average, 60 months. So if you can make 60 decisions, and we encourage a decision every single month, as you said, and I think you were quite right, small milestones, just one milestone every single month, every 30 days, make a decision about your wealth. And 60 decisions later, you can be financially independent for the rest of your life. Or you could trade time for money and volatility in the stock market for 40 years and hope things work out. I don't know about you, but I'm plumping for the former. That's a really, really good explanation. And it's good to put those timeframes on it because I think with social media and with the internet and how instant, you know, the generations have become it and also how much people pretend as well on the internet. It's so easy to let that become toxic within ourselves and then say, hold on, Kevin's saying three to seven years. Well, hold on a minute. Like I've seen people on you know instagram doing it and they've just done it in six months like well well kevin must be wrong and no it's not going to take that long when you know 
we know and anyone who's sensible knows, yeah, it, it will take that long. And it's not even, it, I think people need to look at the time frame, but also what goes into it. So working three to seven years in a day job is what it is, nine to five. Cool. You sort of plod along, you carry on. Working that amount of time in your business on yourself is like another level of work and stress and challenge. And I mean, we love it, obviously. That's why we do it. And that's why a lot of the listeners are doing it and want to do it. But, you know, there is a big, big difference between the both. And, you know, you said sort of what am I thinking about the four that are more likely and the three traditional. I think the four that are more likely scare people who haven't done it because, I mean, if we take property, you know, something I'm really familiar with, you look at average property price, even if you go somewhere cheap like the North, you still look at that and think, this is one of the biggest sort of purchases I'll ever make, at least at this stage in my life so far. What? And then some people say, oh, wealth, oh, that's only for rich people, you know, oh, business, oh, I couldn't. I think there's a big, big mindset thing around everything you've said there that like when I heard you speaking about that I got excited I was like three seven years let's go let's do it but if you don't know how or you haven't been shown or you haven't got a role model I think it's really difficult you know I mean with the people you work with is mindset the biggest barrier that's a good question I'd say there are a number of barriers I think mindset certainly is one um, and, you know, we first thing we do, we've got a nine step roadmap. And if, you know, I'm more than happy to make a copy available to you, Tej, that people will download. But it's kind of a nine step roadmap, which says, right, the first step is mindset. Right. So you got it bang on the head there. And we do two things in that regard. One is we connect people to the reason why, uh, because if you don't have a strong enough reason why, then as soon as things get a bit tough, you'll fail, you know, and you, so you need something there. And I call it the very first ROI. Um, you know, I'm a, a teacher of this, so I, I'm always using acronyms wherever I can. And the first ROI is a reason to overcome inertia. They say in physics, you know, an object at rest stays at rest. So something has to move you. Now, ideally, the movement should come from within. If it doesn't, then maybe it's an inspiration um, you know, from somebody else, maybe you, maybe me, or maybe somebody who's been affected by us in some way. But either way, there needs to be a reason to move. And once you've found the reason and the reason gets embedded in you, then that's often changes the mindset. And the second is look at wealth dynamics. So we do wealth dynamics for all of our members. And um, what that does is helps people to understand what's their best way to stay in flow. You know, so instead of trying to uh, think this is a really interesting point actually um i was talking to one of my students who's um been with us two years and is you know is recognizing or recognized on the podcast we recently did she said you know when when i first decided to become wealthy i thought i needed to change i needed to be a different person when in fact what she realized was she just needed to be who she was which was an outstanding person in marketing lively energy, you know, and to focus on that. And she thought she had to become some sort of financial guru and accountant. Um, so it's kind of staying connected to who you are and not overlooking the mountain of value you've probably already created because you're seeking something new instead of seeking a way to bring what you already have to the world. And I think there's so imposter syndrome often happens as well, which is another mindset issue. I think other things that get in the way is uh, don't know where to start, don't think I've got enough money, I'm too young, I'm too old, I'm too whatever. 
Um, I don't know who to trust. I don't have a plan. All of those things will get in the way. And of course, from our perspective, you know, we will show people how to overcome those things. Overwhelm is another one. Too many things. And back to your point about just take the first step in the first 30 days. Don't try and work out where you're going to be in five years' time. It's like trying to, you know, um, and you buy property in Wales, right? So if I imagine I'm coming to look at a property with you and I'm in London and that's Wales, it's trying to make sure all the traffic lights are green before I leave home. Well, it's not going to work. You know, so don't get perfect, just get started. So that's what we do. And, and we find that if people can follow that guidance and be interrupted every 30 days to stop and reflect and to measure, then, you know, that those sorts of things get overcome. But left to their own devices, people often don't have a great support mechanism around them, right? So you said earlier on, they can see what people are doing on the internet, whether it's real, whether it's fake, and they can feel... I don't know, discontented, almost like um, other people are doing it. I'm not worthy of it. I don't know what to do. I don't know how to do it. So as soon as you can can start to put a framework around you, then it's much easier to get that support rather than relying on opinions or or things you might get in social media. You, you're dealing directly with it and embracing it as part of your monthly life. And the reason we bring it into a monthly life is because most people live their life in that kind of a cycle, don't they? They're, if they're trading time for money, mostly they're paid once a month. You know, the month changes each month, so there's a reason to do it that way. And we find if you can focus on each and all of those things gradually, one small step at a time, wealth is assured. It's absolutely certain. Yes, there are things that will get in the way, and there are things that will accelerate you and things that will slow you down, but wealth is assured for people who will overcome the inertia and uh, follow some of those things that I just mentioned, whoever they go for guidance. Yeah, that's a good way of, of putting it there. And it's the 30 day thing is, is quite nice, actually. I'm going to implement that because I, I do reflect, but it's not as not as often as I think I'd like and maybe not as structured, but the monthly kind of way of doing it is good because I think as entrepreneurs, a lot of us don't celebrate our kind of wins enough. Um, we focus more on well, what's the challenge? What's the problem we need to fix? Which there's always one, but there's always something to kind of celebrate on those little milestones as we go along. Now, you know, these seven pillars, you know, seven, it's a lot, you know, for, I think for most people, especially if they're in a job to think, well, hold on a minute, I've currently got, you know, one, two or three that they don't maybe even realize about one, you can't access till you're a certain age in certain conditions anyway. Um, how, like, I suppose overwhelm is kind of coming to mind like when people are thinking about these seven pillars, if they've never experienced multiple streams. So very broad question here. Um, yeah. Take it as you will, but how do people then get started with, do they do all seven? Do they do one? How, how do they a- attack all seven at the start? Now, good question. Well, first of all, you don't. The, the purpose of understanding seven is to understand really principles, basic principles first. And then once you understand the principles, you can say, okay, now I understand there are seven different things I can do. What have I already got? Okay. And what am I most interested in is my starting point on the on the entrepreneurial side. So for mostly it's focus to achieve security. Okay. So you focus until you get security, usually on one or two, never more than one or two, at least rarely. So we concentrate on one or two pillars. Uh, remembering that, you know, the overwhelm can pick up if you choose property as a strategy or as a pillar, You've got a dozen strategies within that. You have to learn that. So 
you know, there's a whole process to slow things down and say, well, okay, we, we talk about leverage. So once we've got the wealth dynamic, we understand what's going to keep people in flow. You know, what's their natural sense of rhythm? What's their natural way of receiving information, making decisions, right? And wealth dynamics is a good tool for that. Now, then we look at what's the form of leverage because you cannot get wealthy without using leverage. Let me say it again. You cannot become wealthy without using leverage. Now, leverage is just a simple tool of getting more for less. That doesn't mean financial leverage always. doesn't mean you have to go into debt. It can do. But there are you know, five forms of leverage. Financial leverage, which is what have you already got that you could make work harder? Right? That's number one. And we'll talk about one of those that almost everybody has in the first three pillars. The second is intellectual leverage. What do you already know? Back to that mountain of value you already have. What have you been congratulated for? What are you outstanding at? Or what are you really interested in? What really fascinates you? That's your intellectual leverage. Relationship leverage. So there's a kind of a rule in a great book called Who Not How. The kind of orchestrator of the book is a guy called Dan Sullivan, but he didn't write the book because he got the who, not the how, um, which is a principle we adopt in Wealth Builders, which is, At the other end of a how question, there's always a who who's done it before you. Find a who and you'll find a how. Simple as that. So, you know, we're always looking at saying, well, who have you already got in your relationship? Who do you need to bring into your relationship that will unlock the how for you? And my job as the kind of founder of the business and the visionary in the business is to constantly build great people in our who's so that we know when to connect them to somebody else to unblock the how. You get the point? So so this isn't something you do on your own. You know, wealth is leverage of relationship. It's not what you do on your own. You can do it on your own, but it's faster, safer, more enjoyable if you collaborate with others. And I don't mean collaborate with money, but just collaborate in terms of community. The fourth form of leverage is systems leverage. Are you outstanding in anything where you can systemize, you can orchestrate, you can create a plan and a process that works. Okay, so that's another one. And some people are great at systems and organization. Others are just so weak at it, it's untrue. And then time, time leverage. And I think the two barriers that most people get stuck with are the bookends there. So I don't have enough money. I don't have enough time. Well, you have to have enough time. And in my view, certainly from our experience, you can become wealthy with one day a month. Right? So take one day out of 30, so break it down into two hours a week, you know, simplistically or half an hour, sorry, a half a day a week, or you can, um, you know, you can do one day in a month. But either way, you know, you can achieve financial independence by giving yourself one day during the course of a month. The financial leverage, often people will think, well, I can't, I don't have enough money. Well, there's no lack of money. It's a lack of resourcefulness that's at stake here. Now, money is locked up and overlooked in so many different places. Well, we already know that so many people in pillar number one, their home capacity, will unlock that, won't they, from in many ways to, to take equity from their home and use that to invest in other properties. And that's, you know, that's been a staple for property professionals for years. You know, they start there. They often will forget, though, they've got pensions, and those pensions, you know, which traditionally have been part of their past, They've been locked in a product, in a box. Well, they can be unlocked and you don't have to wait till 55 to unlock them. So, you know, we talk a lot 
in our community about the concept of SAS or small self-administered scheme. It's complicated language, Tej, but essentially means you turn your pension into a business that supports where you want to go. And you can do that as a process for doing it. You know, that's uh, we teach that process. And almost all of our students will do that at some level um, and use the money that's locked in their pensions to unlock it to help them in business, in property, in joint ventures, or any of the other pillars that I mentioned on the other side. So it's almost like picking up your pension, putting it on your back, crossing over the divide, and turning it into real money. And for many people, as I said earlier on, the pension can be the largest single bank account they ever have in their life, but it's just inaccessible to them. They don't have a PIN code. Well, we teach them the PIN code, SSAS, and once they've got that, then they can turn that money into property, into other things, as I mentioned. And, and of course, we know that people have money in investments and they'll sometimes cash in those investments. But there is so much money in other people's money. You know, there's so much money in other people's pensions. We often hear in property other people's money is a source of fuel. But once you, there's a process of getting to the point where you become investable, where you've demonstrated enough of a track record, where you craft your message to solve the problem of what other people have in their money. It's a whole new podcast. We could talk about that, how to become investable, how to tell a story that's crafted to solve the problem of the investor rather than I need money to get more property. That's not really a great story. A better story is to how you turn that around so you solve the needs of somebody else. And there's a way of of doing that, which we teach also um, how to be investable in a series of documents that people can create and learn how to create them. So, Tej, this is such a fascinating conversation. We could just keep going round and round and round, but we don't want to overburden people and overwhelm people. But the solutions are all here. It just depends on where you're starting, what's your first form of leverage, what's your very first strategy you're going to engage in for the first 30 days. That's it. And then the next 30 days will take care of itself, and the next 30 days will take care of itself and bizarrely just for fun we give everybody a wall chart and you remember when you were a kid or when you remember watching old tv programs i'm much older than you but you know you see a thermometer on the rise as money's being raised we just measure the recurring income of our members every single month now it's not going up every month because they might be investing time in education or they might be building a relationship but there's a place to measure it so you're measuring your first hundred then to 200, then to 300, then to 400. So you're seeing that, your we call it your thermometers on the rise, and uh, you can see that the stuff you're doing is going to lead to an increase in that recurring income thermometer, um, you know, periodically, and you don't have to worry about it because if you keep doing what we ask people to do, um, and we call it turning the wheel, and I can talk about that as well, but the whole idea is once you start turning things, then you will be moving inexorably forward. And that's why it's a roadmap and that's why it works. And, you know, some people get stuck, sure, but you don't come off track because there's always somebody to talk to um, to, to get you back on track. Mm, I like that. And turning the wheel, you mentioned, let's talk about that. What do you mean by that? And I suppose, what does that mean in a practical sense for people who are getting started or who want to get started? Yes, yeah, so I coined the term turning the wheel. It's if you imagine again a you know just a rotating wheel where there's five spokes to the wheel. So five, you know, pieces of pie, five triangles. 
And in each one of those, there's something that needs to be done in this order and sequence. Don't change the order and sequence because you'll get stuck if you do. Uh, the order and sequence is as follows. Once you've decided on your strategy, whatever that would be, you know, pick a property strategy, doesn't matter what it is, you then seek out the education. Education is the starting point of every wheel turn. Second is support. Who's supporting you on your journey? Who's there to talk to? Who's there to be unbiased? Who's there to be a source of trust and guidance? That's number two. Number three is connecting to other people who are doing it. So who's doing it, who has done it, who could share and show me not just the education, but the education brought to life. So, you know, let's say it's HMOs, for example. So I understand it, right? I've got a source of um, of guidance. That's fine. I'm now being connected to three or four people who've done HMOs with different tenant types in different ways. I go visit if I can, COVID allowing. I go and see what they're doing. And then I see it. Right. This is what I need to become in order for this to work for me. Do I now want to do this and carry on? Or do I want to go back, take that wheel off my plan and put it down and say, well, I've looked at that one. It wasn't for me. I'm now going to do another one. Now, assuming you carried on, you made a connection, you thought, yeah, I could do HMOs. I'd like that. I like the idea of young professionals or whatever. I'm going to do that. Your next stage is due diligence. This is the stage that almost everybody misses out. In their excitement to get things done, they often will overlook the need to evaluate risk. So due diligence is risk mitigation, not risk avoidance, but risk mitigation. Right. Okay, now, what could go wrong here? Okay, so I need to make sure I've got the funding in the right place. I need to know what's going to happen when I do the refurbishment. I need to think about, um, have I done the research on my tenant type? Is there enough demand in the area specifically for this? Once I've ticked all the boxes on the due diligence piece, it's then you only then you take action. Now, we call it guided action, which is, so what's the order and sequence of doing that? Because when I get to the end of that wheel turn, I should hear a click, not a real one, but, you know, a virtual click. And when that click happens, I should be either finding a flow of cash, so a cash flow into my life, which I can measure in my thermometer, or a flow of capital. Right? The difference being, I decided not to do that. I decided to do a flip. Okay. You can make 20 grand from the flip or 30 grand or whatever it was. Right. Fine. So now you get to the end of that point and then you look at your, with your, uh, with your coach again, you're saying, or whoever's guiding you say, right, do I now want to repeat this and do it again? Or you're about what have I learned before I turn the wheel again and either go for a different wheel altogether, which could be, you know, completely different strategy or anything else. So, so the whole idea then is to do it in an organized, sequential, logical way that doesn't get you caught up, doesn't get you confused, and always means you're stopping and evaluating what you've done before you decide to go again so that your wealth just keeps moving forward. You don't ever going backwards and forwards in down cul-de-sacs and, you know, um, in any other analogy you care to use. Hmm. I like that. It's a good way of putting it and a good way for people to think about it. It makes it easier than kind of looking at the bigger picture too much, but to kind of, yeah, I like that. And going back, you mentioned, uh, you know, teaching people how to become investable. Now, I actually did a poll on my Instagram and I said, how many people have raised like investment finance before? 
and it was a minority. So I think it was about, I don't know, 20% or less perhaps. And then I further ask that for the people who said they haven't done it, is it because you didn't need it or because you didn't know how to? And this was an even bigger majority. I think it was like 350 people said because they don't know how to. And then like 50 people said, um, cause I didn't need it. So for me and for people I speak to, they just don't know how to raise investment finance, you know, whether it's a loan, whether it's a JV, I think primarily loans. And to be blunt, a lot of them just won't ever do it because they won't learn how to, they won't, you know, do what they need to do to learn. In your experience, what can we say to people who are starting out? You know, how can people become investable? Yeah, the way to to become investable, um, it's a really good point you make. So first of all, is to make an assessment again, like you did when I suggested people assess the gap between where they are now and their wealth and where they need to be, is to make an assessment of, okay, so what's your strategy? Let's give an example, Tej, right? So we go, okay, what's my strategy? Well, I'm, I'll keep with the theme. I'm doing HMOs, okay. So when you successfully complete your HMO, you put so much money in the deal, you've left so much money in, you know, how many can I do before I run out of money? Well, one, okay then. Uh, or let's say you've got enough to do three, just an example. So you've done three and you've got a thousand pounds a month, be simple, 3,000 a month coming in now net and you go, right, okay, but my target is five. Okay, I haven't got any money left. So have you looked at your home equity? Yes, I've tapped into that. Did you look at your pension? Yes, I tapped into that. You know, I did my SAS and I did a loan back and that's worked. Okay, that's fine. Um, have I got any money left? No. Right. So you completely exhausted your money. So you now need to look at JVs. Now, JV just means a collaboration between one or more people. It doesn't mean any particular structure, or any particular tax structure, or any particular legal structure. It's just a collaboration. Okay. Well, the art of JVs is the art of empathy. It's understanding what's in the hearts and minds of the people whose problems you're trying to solve. Now, this is true of business. If you're an entrepreneur, you're trying to solve the problems of others. So it's just a business-minded way of saying, okay, how do I do that? And the best way to do that, in my experience, and I've done, I've lost count now, more than 500 JVs, is so I know a bit about JVs, is you have to tell a story. It's okay to tell people what you do, and that's I hear that everywhere. Just keep telling people what you do. Tell people what you do. Tell people you do property. I get it. But imagine you could tell a story that would capture somebody's imagination, that would get them to understand who you are, what your purpose is, how you serve people, what you bring, and what you bring to me as a potential investor and a collaborator with you. Because there are thousands of us who want to collaborate. We just can't find anybody to trust. So you tell a story. And the art of good storytelling is the art of good movie making. It's exactly the same thing. And you just imagine it this way. First of all, you have to identify in the story who is the main character and the character is called a hero. For most developers I've ever met, and I use the word developer loosely as somebody who needs money for a project, the hero in their story is themselves. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm wheeling and dealing. I've done property for 10 years. You know, I, I do this, I do that. It's all about me, me, me. Well, that doesn't tell me is an investor or a potential investor, the story. So, you know, what tends to happen is the developer speaks at people and the investor's listening and retreating, but silently. 
and the two sets of wheels are not connecting because the developer fears the loss of the deal and the investors fearing the loss of their money. So how you construct this then is recognize the number one requirement of an investor is security. That's their primary. There are five things they want, but that's their primary one. Their primary need is the return of their investment. That's another ROI. Return of their investment. Okay. So now let's tell the story. So first of all, you would say, you know, here's my business. You are, you've identified the hero. The hero is a problem. What's the problem? Doesn't, can't get enough return on cash. Isn't getting a return on their pensions they're happy with. Doesn't know who to trust. Doesn't know how to keep their money safe. All right, I've got four problems there, right? Okay. So how do you solve my problem? Well, you weave into a story that says, you know, we are whatever company. We love sharing the great returns we get on property in a safe and predictable way with our investors. And we'd like to get to know you to see if we'd be a right fit. So already you're starting to let people know safety. You know, I come from a background uh, of the whatever the background is. Right. So let's say it's military. I come from a military background. Here's my track record. I'm now a guide. I'm no longer the hero. So the hero is the investor who has a problem that we're trying to solve. And I'm now positioning myself as the guide who's going to give them a plan. So the hero is listening, thinking this person gets me. He knows I don't know who to trust. Now, I'm already hearing in a couple of sentences, you're going to take it slow. You're not going to talk at me. You're going to give me lots of time. So first of all, to get to know you, we do this. Then we do this. Then we do this. Oh, that's slow. I feel reassured by that. Okay. Then, um, yes, I said uh, I come from military background. So my focus has always been the safety and security of my my fellow troops. And therefore, precision is the very essence of who I am. And I recognize that for any investor, my primary outcome, my number one priority is the safe return of your money. Isn't that sound a lot different than somebody saying, hi, I need some money because I need to get another HMO? You're already crafting that story. And we teach people how to craft that story um, and then invites the investor, the hero, to a small action, not a big action, a little action. And here at whatever company, we encourage people to start building relationships really slowly. So, you know, an average investor might invest once they've got known, uh, known with us, I'd say £100,000. Um, but we'd like to encourage you to start small. That way we can get to know you. You can get to know us. And by the way, you know, we have a regular investment forum on WhatsApp or Facebook or whatever we do, and you get a chance to meet with them to see how their experience is. And by the way, we've got a 100% payback record with our investors. Do you see how the story is very different? Yeah. As you were kind of saying that, I was hearing, you know, it definitely felt different and I could hear kind of what you were saying and how you were saying it. Um, and it, it would definitely be way softer, way more easy and secure for an investor who may not know you or maybe they've seen you a little bit. But yeah, that's a totally different conversation to what I would say most people do. Yeah. Yeah. It's totally different, and it's crafted in a document. Um, you know, and we create the documents so they're essentially multi-purpose documents, which could be a PowerPoint presentation at a networking meeting. Again, very soft, very low key, or it could be something you show to people if they want to work one-to-one on Zoom, 
or it could be a document you physically send them. Because the other important thing, the reason why it's important to have a document, and you need three documents actually, before money, during money, and after money, but concentrating on the before money, which is where the, the real challenge often is found, where the battleground, if you like, between investors and developers is sought, is um, there isn't anything that an investor can grab. And they need the security of feeling something tangible, whether it's they see it, they can listen to it, they can watch it, they can hold it. Because invariably when people are investors, it's not just their money they're making a decision with. It could be a husband and wife, but you met the husband or you just met the wife. So they need that reassurance also to share and show to somebody else. You know, and, and there's such a, a dearth of investor documents that I see, it's always seems to be just talk, talk, talk. And, you know, as they say, talk is cheap. And my experience is most developers are relatively cheap in this regard. So they think about money as an afterthought. I found a deal. I need the money. They don't think about it as a natural flow of doing business, you know, naturally finding property, naturally funding property, naturally finding investors and building this into a steady and an ongoing flow, which is part of everything they do every single month, as opposed to, oh, I found property, I need money. And then they go into that overdrive mode that you hear played out in every networking meeting across the country or every Facebook post you ever see. When I see people posting on Facebook about wanting money and so on, it just it just makes me kind of cringe completely, really. And these skills are taught, you know, these skills are are learnable. You can apply them. And, you know, my experience is when people learn and apply these lessons, they get money. Yeah. You know, the difference just in that conversation alone, yes, it will take longer, you know, but at the same time, people are in this for the long game. You're building that relationship and building, building anything, you know, takes time and the multiple touch points. And yeah, I really like that approach. And I think if, you know, if 20 people from today implement just that single thing, that conversation style, and also, you know, you used this imaginary person's achievements, which weren't in property, which weren't in business. It was just, you know, this is what I've done in my job, which a lot of beginners kind of forget to do is that, hey, hold on a minute, you have achievements in life. Let's talk about them and use them. Yeah, I think it would actually change how and how much investment money property investors listening to this will get. That's how powerful I think that single conversation yeah, is. Yeah, and these are all these things are all tied together because we mentioned this at the beginning when you said, you know, do people fear overwhelm or what? What are the mindset issues? And often the mindset issues is I'm not worthy. You know, I'm not worthy of other people's money. Well, you are if you look after it. You are if you're genuinely doing good. You are if you're in it for the long term and you are and you want to build great relationships. And uh, this is the essence of doing it. And, um, you know, it's not just the the language and communication verbally that's important. And, again, Tej, I'm more than happy because, you know, in Wealth Builders, we're proud of how much content we give away for free. And I'm more than happy uh, to give away uh, for free um some story templates, you know, so yeah. how how other people have crafted the story and have found success in that story um, so that you can become inspired by how you could do it yourself. So you don't start with a blank sheet of paper. You've got a sheet of paper that other people have used and gone, well, this is what I did. This is how I did it. 
go, well, okay, that story is slightly different from mine, but I see the lessons in there and I can craft my own story from that. So there'll be a way for, for people to reach out and I guess we'll, we'll cover that at the end. Yeah, definitely. We'll, we'll put something in the show notes so people can people can get a hold of that and, of course, see your other your website and your social media and bits like that. So mm-hmm. I think lastly, I'd like to talk about something which actually probably comes a lot earlier, probably comes at the start of people's um, start into kind of wealth building, is the concept, I suppose it's concept of saving money. Because, again, maybe it's a generational thing, but when I used to be employed, everyone around me would live paycheck to paycheck. And I never understood it. And it was just, you know, I don't know, I felt it was a culture that I just had no idea about because I was raised to save basically everything and not to invest. So not the best approach, um, but it was a very saving focused environment I was brought up in. Now, a lot of society, I suppose, is driven by ego and the need to show wealth even if you haven't got any, how important or not important is saving when it comes to, you know, starting the wheels of wealth and, you know, any tips for people who maybe struggle to save? Yeah. Okay. So I get the point of the question. So usually that's a reflection when you start off your journey. Um, Sometimes people, uh, I think Kiyosaki has often used the term, you measure your wealth, not in value, but in, in days or weeks. You know, so if you stopped working, how long would you last, you know, before basically you've run out of money? And uh, in this paycheck to paycheck mentality, which often prevails, student debt and all sorts of other debts can loom large and people don't know how to operate credit cards well. Yeah, it, it could be possible that somebody could literally have wealth of 30 days, you know, 30 days later, they they literally are in real difficulty. Now, I think it's harder to focus on your wealth when you're in kind of a financial infrared position, you know, when you're so unstable that you're going to, you've got more money, more month left at the end of your money. I've heard that one said before. It's probably a bit trite now, but you get the point that if you're in that kind of situation, you've got to change your relationship with how you do things. Now the saving could be in different ways. Okay. So we can say saving is twofold. Saving is the physical plugging of a leak that once you've plugged that leak, you've saved money. And the other is the physical deployment of money, that surplus, almost planting a seed to start to get you into a mindset of building wealth. So let's deal with both. The process we follow to plug leaks, we call debits, D-E-B-I-T-S. With each letter, now you're hearing another acronym from me, standing for a, a specific aspect of your life where savings or a reduction in cost can be made. The first one, D is for debt. Now, anybody who's struggling will often have some form of debt in their life. And there's a whole process for reevaluating and reducing and focusing um, on the elimination or the gradual process of eliminating debt. We call it marshalling the forces. It's a secret in one in my other book called Save a Fortune. I'll make a note because I'm more than happy if anybody wants that. Um, secret number four in that book, which is um, uh, how to organize any credit card you've got. So you focus all the energy on minimizing the payments on everything apart from the highest interest one. And you focus all the surplus on that one, get it gone, cut it up, move on to the next one. And it's a process of following kind of a snowball technique. 
um, aspect of that is wherever it's possible to basically broke your debt, like mortgage debt, for example, you just pay the lowest interest rate you can. And, and that's a process that most people will follow. But if you're not, then, you know, finding a good mortgage broker will, will help you do that. E is education. Now, we know that um, education costs money, but there is a way of reducing the educational costs. I'm not saying don't invest in education. I mentioned earlier on, it's the first point in the turning of the wheel. But you can get education in many ways. Sometimes you can get education by pooling together with somebody else and saying, you know, let's get a two for one. Uh, and many course providers will offer something two for one. So you can halve the cost of your of your educational costs. Uh, sometimes you can get education for free. Um, one of the ways to do that is those people who create the SAS pension will often lend money. So they'll do a joint venture where they'll become a bank. Their money is theirs. So they lend it to somebody else, uh, to an expert or somebody they've done some due diligence on in trust, let's say. And once they've got to that level of trust, the uh, the person who has that trust will often receive, let's say, a loan. And in exchange for that loan, will provide a level of education as part of the currency for that connection. So you can negotiate and find ways to get education for free or at a much lower cost. So, you know, there's a, and sometimes people just should stop. You know, I've seen so many people who spend a fortune and continue to spend a fortune in education and always looking for the one secret, the one magic bullet that will get them to a place where, oh, that's the secret then. Well, it isn't. It's get education on one thing, the thing you want to turn the wheel on, and then decide if it's the right thing and then take action. Do not spend any more money on any other education until you've tried to put into action the physical delivery of the lessons that you've learned. So that's education. B is bills. How do you look at whatever bills you have in your life? Can you eliminate some? Can you reduce some? You know, and there's a constant process we do every year, at least once a year, we have our uh, members do that. And um, the average saving for people starting, there's about 800 pounds. So the average person saves 800 pounds when they focus on doing that and plugging those leaks. Um, eyes insurance, reducing the cost of insurance, minimizing the cost of insurance, sometimes minimizing double coverage or increasing your excesses because insurance should not be automatic. Insurance is something you must have, not something that would be nice to have. And then uh, T is tax, definitely by using pension contributions and ISAs to maximize your tax-free havens. Why wouldn't you use tax-free havens if you can? Uh, so there's ways to do that. And there's certainly ways uh, much more complex than we can go into in a podcast, though, on different tax strategies at different levels of income. And then finally, S is support costs. So who are you paying? What you don't realize you're paying that you could be reducing or eliminating. And for many people, it's the cost of having their pensions or investments managed by the financial services institutions. Um, you know, average, that's 2%. So even if you've got 100,000, right, that's still a sizable sum of money every year. So why not renegotiate that or do it for yourself so that you can save that money? And then any saving you make in any aspect of your DEBITS, you redeploy, plant that as a seed, either in, if you're not doing property, you just want to start building your investments, either eliminate your debt, or you set it up in a regular payment going into an ISA. 
uh, in low-cost trackers or ETFs or exchange-traded funds, just low-cost ways of investing, uh, because the only thing you can control in investing really is the cost of that investment, and most people simply don't do that. Does that help? Absolutely. I think that is solid advice for people listening. So, wow, Kevin, thank you so much. And this brings us to the end of the podcast. For everyone listening, um, the freebies that Kevin mentioned and all the links uh, to him and his website and what he's doing will all be in the show notes. So just scroll down, click them, say hi, get in touch with Kevin. Uh, and yeah, Kevin, all that's left to do is to say thank you. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you very much for the invitation and thanks for drawing out some of the lessons for, uh, for your listenership. If you like this podcast, connect with Tej on Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube for more great content.